You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Well, hello and welcome, everyone, to Literary Treks. And, of course, you know I'm just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing. And I'm super excited this week because uh, we've got a very special episode. Uh, and before we dive into that, though, and, and start talking uh, to our author, we've got a brand new author here in Star Trek Books. I'm super excited to welcome them to the show. But course reminder you know you can get us wherever you get your podcasts um so make sure you subscribe just reviewing us or rating us wherever that is whether it's on like spotify or apple Podcasts or anything like that of course you could find us on twitter at trek fm or on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm you can join the listeners only discussion group if you'd like um and uh called the babel conference over there on facebook and of course you can find us at trek.fm where you can find every single show that we're doing here on the network but without further ado Let's jump into our feature. Well, Alex, one, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have you. you here. And um, yeah, I mean, gosh, first I got to ask, um, it's always fun to talk to somebody who has never written a Star Trek book before, and this is kind of your first time into that four-way. So what was it like getting to dive into this universe? <laughs> so it was like hugely intimidating for one. I mean, there's a lot to know. Um, and I think there's a lot of expectation around it. Um, people want to know if you like get Trek, but that means something mm -hmm. different depending on which person you're talking to. And it means something radically different depending on which person you're talking to. So it was, um, uh, you could say it was pretty intimidating. Uh, but then at the same time, once I started writing, um, I don't know, it was, it was, it was great. Like working with the characters felt like, just coming home, you know, it's uh, really easy for me. I really love those characters, so it didn't make it hard. That, I mean, that's always, a, a, I think, the easiest way to be able to dive into something is when you really love it. And so, you know, since this is your first time here, I was wondering what your Star Trek story is. Like, how did you find Star Trek? What made you kind of fall in love with it? Sure. Well, it's kind of embarrassing. Um, you know, we... My my sister and I caught like some TNT marathon or or whoever was broadcasting it, but it was probably actually USA back then. But it was the original series, and you know we were pretty young, and we were just watching them, and we thought we were going to make fun of them. And the longer we watched, the more we got into it, the less we could make fun of it. The more we were just like, "This is great," and um, so that was. Uh, around the same time that there was a big Star Trek celebration and Deep Space Nine came out at the same time. And like it was a huge deal in my hometown because uh, the 25th anniversary came there, you know, and 
so that was all that I really needed to happen at the same time to make sure that I was sort of cemented as a fan. Um, I really love it, mm. you know, and, and it's just been it's been there ever That's, since. That is really cool. Um, you know, it, it's funny you say that um, people will know if they've listened to the show, but uh, my very first Star Trek episode to ever watch um, was Plato's Children. So I'm not sure if you can get a weirder mm. episode uh, to like have your introduction <laughs> as. Um, but, uh, you know, I. Oh, there's the uh, Spock riding Kirk as a horse. This is one, true. Right? This or is, is true. Yeah, or could have been I can't Spock's remember brain, which, which one you know? was riding which. So, I, you know. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, growing up in the time period of the next generation and then, of course, you know, Deep Space Nine starting and Deep Space Nine really became my love because it's like the show I started from Mm -hmm. the beginning. And so it sounds like for you, Deep Space Nine kind of has a special place in your heart then. Very much so. Very much so. And it was a bit of an answer to uh, the much more dry next Mm -hmm. generation. I, I can agree with that. Um, or it, it felt drier when I was young. Now that I'm older, Next Generation is like a totally different <laughs> show. <laughs> it is, right? Because there's, I, I think that there is something about that show that makes it feel um, a little bit more adult, a little less accessible to necessarily children. But as an adult, you kind of right. get a lot of what well, they're going Well, it's because for. the only child characters like berated off the show. <laughs> This is true. When they're told um, to shut up all the time, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a kid, I'm just like, I don't know about this. You know, Jake seems happy. Uh, Wesley seems like he got dragged with his mom's date. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what um uh, what ended up like being the thing then? Since you obviously wrote a, a Deep Space Nine story here, what ended up being the mm-hmm. thing that really helped you kind of fall in love with Deep Space Nine and its characters? Oh. I mean, that's really hard to say. I really appreciated when they started bringing in like the season four area where I wrote the book. It's like got to be some of my favorite sections, you know, um, they where they bring in Worf right after the movie, you know, was, they destroyed the Enterprise. And so he's sort of got to find his new home. And at the same time, you know, uh, it feels like the the cast is sort of reconstituting before the Dominion War really gets hot. And and so all these new friend groups are forming and all these, you know, like Judzia is no longer possibly an item with Julian, but she's about to be an item with Worf, you know? And so there's this great area to work in where there's a whole lot of freedom and a whole lot of new relationships or it feels mm-hmm. new. Yeah. I, say. I, I think that's something that I, I think for myself really responded to with Deep Space Nine is that, and I think that's a really key word is relationship. Like it is all about relationships mm-hmm. more so than obviously yeah. the next generation. I think it, they're there, but Deep Space Nine is legitimately all about these people rubbing up against each other and because they're all so different, yeah. you know, and they all come from different backgrounds and, you know, they're not all Starfleet. You have a lot of people that, in all honesty, couldn't care less about Starfleet or their <laughs> right, ideals. Like they're, so. <laughs> right, the Bajoran benefit of the Federation is, is dubious yeah, yeah. at this point, you know, and they live and work in a work camp an ex-work yeah. camp <laughs> that's not weird next to a wormhole yeah. no. with magic gods that yeah. live in it you know 
Um, Deep Space Nine is more overtly magical sure, than the other sure. series, though. You know, Next Generation's like, let's kick it off with Picard versus God. Yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> and that's great. That's a great point. And in here, it, it's more of like there, and it's something that we talk about on the Orb all the time. And and you know, I think Deep Space Nine has a much better relationship between the religious aspect and or spiritual aspect of life and life in general mm-hmm. uh, and science. And it mm-hmm. it has a better relationship about talking about all of those things, which for me was also very important as well. And so right. by them treating it with such respect and an mm-hmm. honor, I think um, is, is something that makes the show really special and even really still even unique in the Star Trek canon. So, you know, to your point, I think that you can look at the way that the other cultures are interrogated and they're usually sort of interrogated from inside in Deep Space Nine. So it'll be like a Bajoran temple as witnessed by Akira, you know, whereas like a next generation, it's sort of like, let's go do a Chadich off the ship. This is a weird thing we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to we're going to immerse ourselves in Klingon culture. Normally we're on the ship. And and Deep Space Nine is a lot messier in that regard. It's a lot more. It makes the it makes everybody just kind of feel like they live there as opposed to mm-hmm. a science mission where we're visiting. Yeah, a bunch that's of that's I think that's a great way to put it. It's a lived in universe in many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. So, well, for you then coming to Revenant, what was the genesis mm-hmm. for this book as you were, you know, I'm, I'm sure. I, and how sure. did how did the book come about for you? <laughs> I was actually a little worried because because there's so much Star Trek to know. Um, you know, uh, Deep Space Nine really is the era that I, I sort of latched onto first, so it was the one that I was the most thorough with. And um, and and Jadzia of all the characters was sort of my favorite in that series. And so for you know, when they said, like, we want you to write a Trek book, I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> you know, it's really scary. It's um, like I said, there's a lot to know. And they said, well, we want you to do a Deep Space Nine Jedzia Dax book. And it was just like, how? OK, cool. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> they said I could do any Dax I wanted. And I picked that one, of course. Um, but I think that there one, I think they really wanted to have a trans or non-binary voice writing a trill book. I think that was something that uh, was important to them. And, and I appreciate that, uh, you know, but more, you know, um, I, I think they also had, yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel like in order to really understand the trill, it does kind of help to, be able to think about gender in perhaps a different way than somebody who only has one set of experiences. Yeah. I, I mean, when you think about the trill in, in general and, and the fact that, you know, they have the ability to experience different lifetimes and literally what it's like to be a different sex. Another person. Yeah. And a yeah. different person. And like both of those things <laughs> at the same, you know, like that's, that's an, that's an incredible experience. And one of the things I think that made the trill so interesting, you know, in the first place, uh, well, as a species. It, what was, if I may, one of the things that was really nice was to get to go in there and to take the trill in a direction that I feel like the show, like almost did a couple of times, but 
um and and maybe they're maybe you know maybe i would say they're doing a better job now but you know when when gen z's lines are things like oh it always takes me twice as long to get ready when i'm a woman you know it's like oh that's so surface level oh my god (laughs) Mm -hmm. we could do way better than this you know um it's the same it's the same as like Joran. you know he kills people because he's crazy like that's not why nobody kills anybody for that reason you know yeah and, yeah and so it was cool because as i was researching for the book as an adult i got to see some of these things where i was like i feel like these are maybe shortfalls even mm-hmm. yeah well and i think it's it's always interesting too because like um everything is always a product of its time um but i think one of the cool things sure. of, about you know a star trek is that it allows you to um continue on and it allows mm-hmm. you to be able to uh, bring new experiences to it. It you know bring new yeah. levels to it, which is the hallmark yeah. of something that lasts, right? Right. Oh, I agree. And I think that Trek is really, uh, as as opposed to being adversarial to that, I think that Trek is really ripe for it. I think that uh, it's it's a series that has always wanted to do the best for its time. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And absolutely. So yeah. Even when we go back and we're like, okay, like the the black half white half face episode is really kind of simplistic from the those old scientists era, you know the 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 thing is, you know, they were trying very hard for their time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I'm really glad you said that because I think you know a lot of times fans, um, when they look back, they can appreciate that that um, you know. Trek has always found a way to uh, talk about the best of us within the context of where it is in time and space. Right. And, it's transgressively progressive. Yeah, exactly. And so you can't um, you can't expect them to have done things the way we, we might think about things now because that wasn't even possible. That, it wasn't even a thought in anybody's <laughs> brain then. Well, and I'd rather have a smartphone than a tricorder. So, you know, things yeah. change. <laughs> There you go. There you <laughs> like, go. I'd much rather have a smartphone. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, in in many ways too, I think what that shows as well is that you know, I, I think um, it's C.S. Lewis who talks about the idea of having chronological snobbery, which is the idea that you know your your um, part of of the of existence is the most advanced and the best. Like, and that there's nothing you can learn right. from the past. Sort and, of a and temporal I think that's, ethnocentrism. Yeah. <laughs> And what's beautiful about this book, I think, um, and one of the things that I think that you were able to kind of really dive into with the Trill, and I really love this idea, is about this idea of being able to redeem the past through the different lifetimes that they have um, as Trill, and that redemption is possible. And part of that is that they have a better understanding of the past because they live it but they right. uh but it's then so important to understand their history and so mm-hmm. i thought that was a really cool theme that you were able to dive into with this book and with the trill and it speaks directly to that that kind of like tension that a lot of fans kind of have with older material but it's like oh yeah you know you you have to you have to respect what happened before so that you know, we don't end up repeating it. That's the famous statement, right? Right. Well, and it's and it's funny because Curzon's 
antics in the 90s are sort of like, yeah, Dax, you used to have a Playboy in you, you know, like you used to, you used to not be so straight laced. And, and nowadays it's like, used to be something of a problem, actually. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, and Curzon and, and Duran are, are quite the inheritances to get. And, and that's something that I, I, I was thinking I was really struck by as I was rewatching and researching for the book was just how put upon Jadzia is and how much sort of grace under fire that she brings. And uh, how much I think is, is the, the actor really behind that sort of, because she has such gravitas, right? Like she could just command every single scene she's in. And, and so I, I, you know, it's, it's neat to see the way that, that she copes with those characters on screen and those legacies on screen. And then I, I felt like it gave me a ton to work with. And I, th I think that's, like I, I like what you said—the the grace to which she deals with them, you know. Because I think that's it's something to which when we kind of look at ourselves as as if we don't need grace, mm -hmm. um, we treat others badly. And Janzia, mm -hmm. because of her experience as a trill and knowing these people very intimately, the good and the bad. Um, she and and the good and the bad in in and of herself as well. Like she's right. able to to extend more grace than we might do because we don't have that experience of really, and unless we spend the time to truly, you know, spend years getting to know somebody on that type of intimate level, and it's oh, kind sure. of our snap judgments to which make that impossible. Oh, yeah. And, well, and on top of it, she's wise but young. And so she has all the energy to deal with the world and all of the wisdom to kind of not get flapped. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's what I really like about her is she's so fun to write. She just never, you know, she, she screws up and she has problems, but they're all very accidental, awesome. You know, like it's she's not the kind of person that makes stupid mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. but, but, you know, at the same time, you can't make her perfect as a writer because then it's boring. And so trying to work with that was interesting. It's one of the fun things about Dax is that she kind of revels in her imperfection, right? She enjoys her, the process of learning, you know, and mm -hmm. she is willing to have fun in life. It's kind of one of the things, especially, <laughs> uh, we just on the orb, we're talking about, the way of the warrior and you know in that episode specifically she's trying to get kira to loosen up and enjoy life right right and and right. that's that that's the beauty of i think one of the things that the trill are able to have learned which is that life is meant to be lived and to be lived mm -hmm. to the fullest and that those mistakes are going to come and the important thing is about learning from those mistakes and and moving forward um, and not getting kind of mired necessarily in the past. And I, there's something really beautiful, I think, about that because it's something we all need to learn. Right. Right. Well, and I also appreciate that she's a character who's, you know, she's a, she's a, a woman, but she's also written as very possessed of her sexuality, um, which, again, you know, they didn't always do such a great job. <laughs> uh, but, but they, 
but I, I, I think it's interesting because she often drags the other characters out of their comfort zone. She'll sort of answer the door and you'll see some lover walking through the background or, you know, she'll take Kira to the hollow deck and Kira's like way too religiously conservative to handle it. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think that I love that relationship, by the way, between Dax and Kira and how Dax is very much an investigator and I have to tear apart every single mystery because I need to know how it works. And Kira's like, I need to preserve every single mystery because it's sacred. And, you know, and, and so um, that was a really fun symmetry to write. Yeah, I would love to talk to you about that because obviously they're both on the cover and that is a super mm-hmm. important relationship, especially I think, you know, as we move from the first few seasons, you know, they establish a relationship, but by season four, it really did feel like they were intentionally really building into that at that point. And so talk about just getting to spend time with those characters and kind of writing two sides of two completely different coins. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, what makes them work is that they have this really great buddy cop dynamic, you know, where we're, you know, like I said, Dax really is. I have to check out every single thing. And Kara's brave enough to check out every single thing, but she's not necessarily going to want to, you know, Dax is like, I want to know how the wormhole works. And Kara's mm-hmm. like, I'm pretty sure we're not supposed to know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and and so to see them working together uh, on the show is really fun, but usually they're sort of facing a problem where, the solution is set. We need to get out of Gold Ducat's trap, you know, kind of. Uh, whereas in this, where it's much more open-ended and they can sort of discuss things, um, there were a lot of little sit-downs that kind of came naturally for these characters over over dinners where they were planning and plotting and strategizing. And that was that was my answer to trying to make it more Trek-like as well, as opposed to like trying to always skip to the action and always trying to skip to the explosions and that kind of stuff. I wanted them to turn over the problems together and evaluate them together. And because they have such unique voices, it it, it actually makes it really easy. Um, it's it's like the opposite of difficult. So, Well, and, and one of the things I love about their relationship, and I think that you nail, and, and one of the things that it helps then by, you know, when, you bring in Worf and Bashir into the story as well, is that it? the beauty of Janzia is that she really appreciates different perspectives because she mm-hmm. understands as a Trill that different perspectives lead to better results, better ideas, right? Because you're really able right. to sift to things through um, all of these different um, thought processes that lead to maybe the most truest uh, of the answers, and so I I thought that that really helped with the book as well. Thanks, no, I I appreciate that, and and I think that you're right that because of her extremely diverse array of experiences, she's always going to come with some level of empathy, and that's just such a great hallmark for that character. Um, especially later, you know, she sort of cracks Worf's shell, and it was nice to put those hairline fractures in by the way i definitely wanted to write before their relationship was even close to sorted because a lot of their best moments come on screen and i can't i don't first of all i can't bring myself to compete with that like to even try because it it feels like that's sort of the relationship and 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 that needs to be left alone but i do love putting those early signs of it in there 
I, um, uh, you know, in the same way that I liked putting a lot of references to like Bashir being a superhuman and, you know, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, that was great. That and, and I think it worked really well in the story. But with Jadzia Worf, I think I did like the way in which, because it, it always made sense that they were going to work well as characters. I mean, who, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure they had no idea that Michael Dorn and Terry Farrell were going to just have electric chemistry from the Burn moment. Burn up they the were, screen, yeah. man. <laughs> Seriously, they're on fire, oh uh, like a cling on fire every time um, they're on screen together. But even from the first moment where he's like, nice hat. Um, but I, I think what is great about pairing her with a Klingon is that Genzia always embraced so much of Curzon's love of Klingons. And so yeah. for her to then end up with a Klingon made so much sense. Like she had chosen. <laughs> She's to kind in- of a Klingon yeah. otaku. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like she studies like Klingon martial arts. She s- speaks it perfectly, you know, multiple lives, uh, you know, and, and I mean, but she takes it very seriously. You know, mm-hmm. uh, this is one of the things I think is really funny is everybody's like, Oh, she's so kind and she's so sweet. And I'm like, she killed a guy or helped three guys kill a guy be- from another life. Yeah. Like yeah. she, she died in that debt. Wasn't over. Yep. yep. <laughs> she's not that sweet. <laughs> no, no. And she knows, a you know, a, a billion different ways. I feel like to kill you with her pinky finger if she wanted. Right? So yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. She holds her own against Worf, man. Uh, Which is good. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. Well, so we've kind of talked around the idea of like the trill, but yeah. one of the things about this book is there's just kind of a lot of things that you kind of really dive into. And one of the things, oh yeah, that you added for this story and kind of added to the trill was the idea of the lost lights. Oh yeah, and I'd mm-hmm. love to hear you know, where that idea came from for you um, and, and, and kind of fleshing that out with Vess's plan and kind of this ultimately, um, I think it's the very dichotomy of everything that the Trill and the Symbiont stand for together. Like it's the exact opposite of, right. You know, and I, so I'd love to hear you talk about that. Well, so there are a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the second that they were like, we want you to write a Dax story. The very first thing that I thought was this has to span multiple lifetimes. It feels like such a waste when you have a Dax centric story that doesn't have something to do with another lifetime. Um, and then the second thing was that, you know, that, that symbiosis is all about sharing a hundred percent of yourself and so what happens when it's not a not a codependent relationship like that um what happens when it's sort of a, an abusive relationship and Vess evolved as a villain because of the abuses that Dax has suffered on the show um for Curzon to agree to become part of her while having sexually harassed her without ever confessing any of this to her is quite the burden. You know, that guy is always going to be a part of you and you'll, I mean, yeah, you get to talk to him about it sort of, (laughs) but there's a lot of processing. I imagine that would cost you and, 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 you know, to say nothing of Duran. And so there are these, 
dark secrets in this organization that's all like love, peace, we share ourselves because we are wise. They're not, though. And that's an obvious front. And you have a character who is canonically traumatized by them. You know, um, so Dax like hates the symbiosis commission going into it. And so to take that hatred that she has hinted at in the show and the sources of it, you know, Curzon is only part of it. Of course, there's Dr. Renhall's betrayal over Duran and, and Equilibrium. Uh, you know, all of those things kind of start to coalesce around a set of themes that create Vess. And, and so that's really where Vess comes from, is I needed a multiple lifetime spanning villain who represents a whole lot of selfishness and that, that sort of the, a perversion of symbiosis. I, I really like the way you talk about that because it, it really does feel like the ultimate in selfishness. And it is kind of scary because like you said, there's this like peace and love and whatever, you know, but then it's like we run into the Trill Section 31 basically. Um, yeah, you know, and because they're they're like, unfortunately for for all of us, there's always a dark side to things, and that's the right. unfortunate nature of of like for at least for us as humans, you know, like our dark sides. But yeah, I really appreciated that, and and I loved because one of the things that I did think that this book really did was it did show how the the symbiosis commission is right in the sense that it is very important to pick who is picked. To be a host mm-hmm. because of how wrong this actually can go. And your book really shows absolutely how bad this can be for right. host as well as symbiont. It's sort of, it's sort of, yeah, the symbiosis commission is the worst thing ever until you tried being without it. <laughs> and one of the things that really strikes me about the symbiosis commission is that very clearly the field docents are flawed. Um, you know, they, they, they sort of make that the point of them even, you know, in that one episode where a young initiate is about to be taught or docented by Dax and he's terrified because it's Dax, you know, and, and he, you know, he's got all these worries. Um, and you start to see, well, he's worried because I think was his parents wanted him to become joined or something like that, you know, so he has these artificial pressures on him, causing him to try and share his entire soul with another person for all of eternity, um, and then you have these people who are clearly not impartial judges who render a pass fail at the end of the most grueling period of your life so far. Uh, and then to, to even further complicate things, if the judges exhibit a regular bias, that regular bias could have a compounding or accruing effect over lifetimes. So if you were a little biased towards one thing and you pick somebody who's biased like you, <laughs> right uh, you know uh all of a sudden the trill culture that survives over eons is the one that's picked by the group in power um yeah. which yeah, everybody uh vest points out a couple of times i think yeah yeah well and and that the part of that i think and and what you added for the trill is that it really does like there is this bureaucracy that kind of makes this able to continue because there's a lack of transparency right and to me that really stuck out is that this lasts because we're keeping secrets where we don't need to keep secrets and we're holding on to power 
in really bad ways. And and I thought that that was right. a, I mean, it, it felt very, like Trek, it felt very relevant to, to many of the things <laughs> right. we see, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, again, in equilibrium, when, when Renhall's willing to let her die to preserve their, their precious state secret, um, you know, and, and, and Commander Sisko comes in there and, which, by the way, part of the reason I wrote Revenant is because that episode where she gets sort of all of her backstory, it's all done by Julian and Commander Sisko and it's, it's or Captain Sisko. And you're like, I really, I really think Dax should have been there for that, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, but this, yeah, that's what's great about books, right? Uh, you know, but if the commission was willing to let her die and she found out about that and they stopped it. What what about the times? What about the people they didn't find out about, right? Like, what if somebody else? Surely, she's not the only case with a memory block bad host. Are they letting people just go out of sync and then die? Yeah, and I mean they were going to. <laughs> it, it's a scary thought, right? And 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 part of I think one of the things that you do with all of this is that you know we do see. That especially the way that Vest deals with things, it's it's this ultimate in that and and Duran struggling and not understanding this idea. It's not about being subservient. Uh, it's not about one being in power over the other and dominance. It's about harmony, right? You know, and that's the thing to which a character like and this is what made him completely unsuitable for joining anyway is that he doesn't understand this idea of not being control. And being in harmony with one another, like um, the the um, the Jewish word for it is like uh, is for peace is shalom. Like there is uh-huh. this absolute um, peace between the symbiote and the host, and that's what makes them compatible. And people like him, and of course like Vess, they have none of that. And it's that's where I think that selfishness comes in. So all of this together to me was something that I just I saw a lot of places where it, w- it was very relevant to the place that we're at in the world today where it's just like there's all glad. of this selfishness and there's and it's causing no harmony you know because mm. people think that life should be about one being dominant over the other and rather rather than us working together right and, and yeah exactly saying like just because people have different sets of priorities doesn't necessarily make them wrong yeah that's a good yeah it's a great point it's a great point I really, there was this whole part of the book, especially with Duran, and I love the flashbacks there with him. But this idea of like life being hard and Duran not really being ready for that or wanting that. <laughs> and it kind of reminded me of the quote from The Princess Bride where he, um, Wesley's like, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something, you know? Right. And Duran. Wants the easy button for life. Yeah, he, he, right? he's just. I just need some unlimited wisdom, please. Exactly, exactly. And and what I really liked about this book is the way that you kind of reinforce this idea. Like the best things in life are the ones that are almost always the hardest to get, and that's one of the things that makes you know whether it's flawed or not. The way the symbiosis commission has this set up is they are trying to almost even force the people out who aren't willing to work the hardest for it because this is something that's so 
important. This is, and it's also something that can, as we talked about, can go so wrong. So it needs to be difficult. Well, and you know, when you think about it, they have what, 500 or so new joinings a year. Um, It's not enough. It's not even close to enough and not to support a multi-million population, you know, probably multi-billion population. Um, And, and so when you're, sort of measuring who gets those things, the Symbiosis Commission is right to be afraid that commercial interests and corruption and graft would be used to say like, well, I may be Don Corleone, but I'd also like to have Einstein put in me. You know, like, <laughs> um, you know, I think that there's a huge potential for the world's most, you know, the galaxy's most villainous people to reinforce their villainy uh, using symbiosis and and it's terrifying because the people who are often afraid to die, who are afraid of leaving no legacy, are often tyrants. Yeah. You we know? call them Sith in another franchise. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. And so um, you do need to have a bureaucracy that is largely independent and has very little interaction with the ruling class. But um, at the same time, that lack of interaction, especially with the public body politic, causes other issues. There's no oversight now. And there's, you know, and and these are the sorts of things that we have when we have any sort of governmental body, whether we're talking about the World Health Organization or the CIA. You know, um, you're always going to have that, well, the organization automatically moves to protect itself. For good or bad, organizations always protect themselves first. And and you see yep. that in the Symbiosis Commission. Well, and I mean, in some ways, too, like that's where when you think about it, like that's where Duran and Vess are, right? They're protecting themselves. They And they only care about themselves instead of the greater yeah. whole. And, you know, and, and in that way, that is where they are looking for the easy way out instead of right. the, the difficult way, which... Obviously, the juxtaposition is with, like, you writing Dax in this story. She's had the difficult way, right? She had a difficult time getting it accepted. You know, she got washed out. She went back. And so... And then she won and her trouble started. Yeah. (laughs) But, but, But at the same time, she's also willing to do the hard work of what it means to be joined, right? right? To to right. continue to become one with these other versions of who she used to be. And so she goes and stands trial for Curzon's old murder. She yep. goes and digs up the past every time something goes wrong. You know, yeah, she's always left holding the bag, but she always holds it. Yeah. And and that's something that's amazing about her as a character that that is sort of her a lot of ways her purpose. Um, I, again, she's just one of the most meaningful characters that's, um, I won't say often overlooked because everybody loves and misses her. And I, I think really the, you know, when they, when they killed her off, I think that was really solidified how much everybody loved her. Um, yeah. you know, because that was a BS way to die. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, as much as, and I, so I do love Esri, but I, I, I remember that. You know, I remember that happening on television and I just remember being devastated. Um, and it was difficult yeah. because it was a character that we had all grown to love and uh, I think had oh my meant gosh, yes. so much to so many people. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And especially for somebody who's, you know, sort of questioning their their place in the world, uh, seeing somebody who's walked in a lot of different shoes and does so well uh, can be really amazing and really meaningful, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, and that's not to say that Esri doesn't fulfill all that. She does, actually. She's sort of the awkward phase, right? Yeah. She's the early experimentation The awkward phase. stage trill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that about her. I think that's great. Like, she's not, she didn't go through the initiate program. She doesn't know what she's doing. Um, that's pretty funny. And it's a good, it's a good storyline. And, it, and it, you know, and, and I don't want to take away from Nicole uh, DeBoer, who, uh, did a great job and yeah and yeah no it's a good I interview i might add <laughs> yeah really nice person i i've always wanted to meet her she's she's one of my favorites and um so um hopefully i'll get a chance to to meet her at a con one day but um you know i as we we're talking i was kind of thinking about this idea of you know nemi is mm. trying to cure the emptiness that she felt inside and mm it kind of reminded me of this idea of like that no trill is an island entirely unto Mm. themselves. Right. You know, and Mm -hmm. it really struck me that the, so many trill are stuck thinking the only true life is being joined. Right. And that's not the case because there is life to be had and a good life outside being joined and you can have fulfillment and joy and, and the be self selfless and and for the benefit of others and yourself in a way that brings you fulfillment even without having you know this thing that we all consider to be really important for the trill and like understanding that i i think what makes like when i was thinking about like what makes initiates ready to be joined is when they realize they don't necessarily have to be joined <laughs> that's so true right and so that's the one thing that somebody like nemi and or duran don't have right they feel like they are on an island and the only thing that's going to fix this is by somebody else coming in and fixing their problems that's not how right. it works correct well and you you sort of nailed one of the central themes which is that if somebody has something that you value more than anything if somebody has their finger on that that's that's your lover. They can do anything to you. Um, if you say I'll pay any price, yeah, you will. <laughs> it's uh, pretty much guaranteed. And and so, uh, I, and and this is true, by the way, in, in in publishing as well, and in show business. You know, this is true. If you try to climb the ladder really high at your local job, whatever. You know, that if if you have something that you desire more than anything and a predator catches wind of that, then they will exploit it. And it's it's very easy for them to do. You know, and mm-hmm. I've known people who have been, you know, fans of series who have been, you know, I'm not not here, but who have had unfortunate encounters with creators. I've known writers who have had you know, predatory encounters with agents and editors, you know, there, there's no shortage of people in the world who are ready Mm -hmm. to take everything from you. If you say, I'll give you anything. Mm. Um, Mm. and that's something that I would like people to recognize. Um, you know, you never know when you might be asked, Mm -hmm. uh, 
to to make that kind of a compromise and if you're not ready mm-hmm. well and and i really like that you say that because i think one of the things that it reminds you is that like what is it that you're willing to sacrifice everything for and is it worth the sacrifice like is is it right. is it something that is good enough or big enough or important enough or actually really worth giving everything for like cuz a lot of people yeah. we you know we even in my own life i think you know anybody can say this if they really dig deep it's like oh well, i've you know <laughs> i've given my life for this thing and then you get it and you realize oh this isn't really worth it <laughs> you know i i love to tell people this because you know in a lot of ways, I feel like I've accomplished many of my dreams, but uh, accomplishing your dreams doesn't solve your problems. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the weirdest thing because it's this amazing gift, you know, that you've accomplished your dreams and you've gone, you've gone to this place that's, that's rarefied air and that's great. You still have problems. Mm-hmm. You still have people that don't like you. You still have, yeah. you know, bills that got to get paid and i hate to tell you this <laughs> writing doesn't do a great job of that um you know not at, at first anyway and and so we can't be the sort of people that will do anything for that dream job for example you know in this country we like to sell you the idea that you're going to work in this amazing job and it's going to that then you're not working anymore you're just a zookeeper who that we pay you know you just love it that much that that's crap that's crap and i see people get broken in half over corporate loyalty all the time you know trying to chase down their dream job you know uh you think a billion dollars is going to help you but there's no there's no such thing as a great person with a billion bucks. <laughs> yeah, you know the Beatles are right. Can't buy me love. So uh... <laughs> right. I mean, maybe you, somebody knows some great billionaire, and <laughs> if any of my employers who are billionaires are watching, I'm sure you're awesome. Yeah. Oh, totally my different. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I I wanted to um, you know, for you, um. I was kind of thinking of like, like a last question. I was just thinking like for you as is with writing this book and what was the most important thing for you in it? That the thing that you felt like you poured the most part of yourself into that kind of, you know, cause like I know every author, there's something about every book that they write where there's a big piece of them in that book or else they wouldn't write it. And I'm just kind of wondering for you, what was the biggest piece of you in this book? So at the end, when Gen Z is taking care of everybody else and she's alone and she finally decides to talk to Curzon and have the conversation that she really didn't have with him when he was Odo. Uh, because it's sort of the beginning of it. And she gets shocked, I think, and doesn't sort of get all of her questions in, and then it's over. And so I wanted to have 
I think a lot of people who are in positions to take care of others in their orbit often find that they give everything they can. And then at the end of the day, they have some issues that they need to work through that are things that have hurt them or that are bothering them. And maybe they have to rely only on themselves. And because everybody else is too <laughs> dead or traumatized in this case, you know, to, to be of any real assistance. And, but at the same time, you know, she's had, she's called her friends and they've helped her as much as they can. And she's done everything that she can. And, and that conversation, I mean, I agonized over it because everybody who is older than a certain age, you get to a point where you sort of incriminate your past self and you say, I don't like who you were, or at least I do. You know, I, I grow so much as a person that I grow away from things I don't like, hopefully. <laughs> and to, to have that conversation and to try and delicately walk that line where you, you have to forgive yourself at some point and you have to hold yourself accountable forevermore. And that's such a hard line to walk. And it's not something that anybody really masters easily. And, and, and just like I said, writing that scene, I mean, it was, it, was, it was a lot of back and forth. I mean, we, you know, we really agonized over it on my end, on the editorial side as well. I really like the way that you put that, though, because you know, I think if anybody is, you know, like you said, you get to a certain age and you look back and you're like, if you're honest with yourself, there's always those things in your life where you're like, wow, I was a dick. You know, yeah. or I was a terrible yeah, you feel person. Like a total failure yeah, about something. Exactly. Yeah. And and it is important to like you said, it's not just about forgetting yourself, but it is about holding yourself accountable. And I like that yeah. idea of like having the personal responsibility aspect there because a lot of times I think that gets forgotten and it's just about, oh, you just need to forgive yourself and move on. Well, but you need to also it, it's it's I think the reason that Kirk in Star Trek Five says, I need my pain. Because mm -hmm. it's that carrying with you the lesson that you learned and the pain. As we talked about earlier, the, the difficulties right. in life are the things that make us like overcome those humps in our life. They overcome those lumps of our personality to where we're hopefully becoming better versions of ourselves. I think, I think that we start out as very soft people and that we lack a lot of definition. And every time the world puts a dent in us, it also contributes to our shape. And some of the dents are unfair. But the question is, can you work with that and make a beautiful shape, or are you going to allow it to twist you? Yeah, wow. That's really good. Because it's also about, like, things happen to you either unexpectedly or not your fault or <laughs> hopefully unexpectedly oh yeah or they are something that maybe you've caused and all of those things yeah. like but again it becomes about the responsibility of like am i gonna be a victim or am i gonna be a victor you know like oh so oh, wow. yeah that's, that's a nice one that's um <laughs> you know and, and you're not you're not you're not you're not wrong and at the same time 
you know, it's never too late to recognize that you are the villain or that the villain resides inside of you. And that when that happens, see, in my books, and I probably shouldn't say this, this is sort of exposing the, the inner workings of the watch here, but there's a simple test you can follow to see which one of my villains is evil. And you cross the threshold into evil when you're exposed to ignorance and you choose evil, right? Because ignorance is an interesting thing because it can't coexist with knowledge. It's, it's instantly vaporized by knowledge. So at that point, you have two options, right? Fix yourself or choose evil. And so anyway, that's Curzon is interesting because... Mm -hmm. He sort of chooses evil at the Jantara in a lot of ways. He sort of word salads her and, and oh, you are so lovely. And I, I don't, you, you have to understand my position. And he like tries to like worm out of it. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's good because she says like, that's not enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have things like that every one of us has things like that in our past even if it just was you weren't enough of a hero when it was required mm. it's not even your fault it's just they needed a hero it wasn't you mm. yeah that's i mean that's so good and I, I mean i think that's the fun of and the importance of good storytelling in in the end mm. because it does help us to be able to uh, you know, come to a realization about these things in a way that not soft pedals it, but allows us to no. accept it more than somebody just being in our face and wagging their finger, you know? And, and I think that's the beauty of like, it's why storytelling has been so important since, you know, the myths of, of, of any country, you know, whether you think about Greece or, or, um, you know, um, Norse mythology yeah. and all those kind of things. Like it, it helps us to be able to, see a picture of what we are it holds the mirror up for us and do we see our reflection in the good and the bad and then when it's the bad are we willing to make the change i like to think that you know people think that we read stories for escapism and maybe that's where you start but it's where you find yourself when you're lost you know and that's why stories are the most important thing in my life uh and it's weird because you know when you write tie-ins, it's a you know it's a it's a corporate venture. You know, it's owned by Paramount for money, uh, but at the same time, it's like for me, it's a chance to tell a story, and that's sacred. You know, so that's uh yeah. I guess that's my closing thought is uh you know when we go to the the theater or the library or whatever, we're not trying to get away from ourselves. We're looking for ourselves. Well, that was. Fantastic. I mean, I, I, Alex, I think that's a, it is a fantastic way to kind of bring things to a close. But as always, and especially since this is the first time that you're here on Literary Tracks, where can people find you online? And what else uh, do you have out that they should be either looking at now or what do you have coming up that people should be checking out? Sure, sure. So uh, coming this July, I have my new trilogy kicking off with Orbit called August Kitco and the Mechas from Space. It's book one of the Star Metal Symphony. And um, it's about August Kitko and the Mechas from Space. What else? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's about a jazz musician and a fabulous pop star at the end of uh, the galaxy fighting against robots, giant robots from space. What are you going to do? Uh, I'm very excited about that. 
And if you're the kind of person who thinks, I'm going to wait until the trilogy's out to binge it, uh, don't do that because then they don't finish publishing it. <laughs> Go ahead, buy it, put it on your shelf, just keep it there. You don't have to read it. I won't tell anyone. <laughs> and uh, um, also, yeah, Revenant just came out. You can find me online at Alex, uh, Alex White Books. You can uh, on Twitter. Um, alexrwhite.com if you want to go to my website uh, you can also check for content warnings there on any of my books on the books page if you need to need to know any of that stuff ahead of time i have a good number of books out including two aliens books if you like the aliens series the cold forge and into charybdis and my uh, salvager series from orbit's pretty well regarded too if you like space fantasy so magic in space and unlike star wars i just call it magic nice nice well okay so <laughs> I, i'm gonna give something away because we were talking a little bit before we started recording mm. and i one last question for you if sure. you had to pick a song that represents revenant to you and and not one that you Ooh, wrote yeah. yourself but just one in uh -huh. general that you kind of like this is kind of what this meant to me as a book what would that be Okay, hold on, because I have a playlist for Revenant. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> I, I always, I always build playlists for every single one of my. That's books. awesome. Um, so I think either um, Ghost Keeper uh, by Clan uh, Caruso and Given, or um, Desire by Bob Moses and Jew. I have a lot of uh, really. Uh, I like EDM a lot. I'm sorry. That's me. That's awesome, though. No, that's because as we were oh, talking. I, I'm not sorry. Yeah. I love I love EDM. Yeah. That's well, great. and I, I mean, as we were talking before we started recording, I know you're so into Tattoos music and everything. And that's <laughs> fantastic. Fine. So I, I love it. Apologize. I love it. Um, well, uh, you can find me, of course, all over social media, Matt Rushing Zero Two, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, all those places. Uh, of course, I'm here on the network doing the 602 Club, which is our general geek show talking about all the fandoms we love, not Star Trek related, because, well, we talked a lot of Star Trek here on Trek FM. And uh, you can also <laughs> find me doing The Orb as well as Warp 5. The Orb is about the Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And, of course, Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. And then I'm over on the Nerd Party Network with two shows. One's a finished show I did with Drea Kaufman called Owlpost. We were talking about a Harry Potter one chapter at a time. And then talking about Star Wars with John Mills uh, each and every week on Aggressive Negotiations. But thank you so much for joining us. But until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.